0: So yes, we're continuing our series on a letter to the church in Ephesus called to a higher life. Uh, Last week, John took us through chapter 4, instructions to Christian living. I get to bring part 2 so I can follow his efforts from last week. Yeah, thank you, James. I can correct him, shall I? (laughs) I think it's important to emphasise this morning that what we're going to read today is where God wants to take us. He wants where areas in our lives he wants us to release us from. It's not a passage about condemnation. It's not a passage about, look, you're falling short. It's about, look, God has more for us. If you're struggling with any of these areas today, come and seek prayer. Come and seek the face of God. He's got life for us. He's got abundance for us. We don't need to go, you know, just get through life just as we are. We don't need to struggle. God has more for us. So about halfway through our series, give or take, um, over the last few weeks, we've read that the Apostle Paul encouraged and commanded believers to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called, in Ephesians 4.1. In chapter 4, verse 17, Paul tells us that this means we do not ultimately live like the world and cultures around us. He has summarized this as a three-step process. Firstly, put off the old self, which is corrupted by our fleshy and deceitful desires. Secondly, be renewed in our minds and attitudes. And thirdly, to put on the new self, which is gloriously free in Christ and given so we may have the likeness of God in righteousness and holiness. As I said, today's verses are full of contrasts. May we see them not as perhaps behavioural therapy or even self-help advice. Our minds, with their deeply held beliefs and values, must experience the revelation of Christ on each issue. Every verse may resonate with each one of us differently, and that's okay. But ultimately, if we're not living the life in all of its fullest that God wants for each one of us, we're missing out. It is the duty of Christians to encourage, by the blessing of God, each other to think seriously and to warn believers of idle conversation or perhaps behaviour. Today in this place, it's a place of safety, as I said, without condemnation. Christ came to set us free and he did so in love. Let us read together the message's take on the verses from the top together what this adds up to then is this no more lies no more pretense tell your neighbor the truth in Christ's body we're all connected to each other after all when you lie to others you end up lying to yourself go ahead and be angry you do well to be angry but don't use your anger as fuel for revenge. And don't stay angry. Don't go to bed angry. Don't give the devil that kind of foothold in your life. Did you used to make ends, meet by stealing? Well, no more. Get an honest job so that you can help others who can't work. Watch the way you talk. Let nothing foul or dirty come out of your mouth. Say only what helps, each word a gift. Don't grieve God, don't break his heart. Each word, sorry, his Holy Spirit moving and breathing in you is the most intimate part of your life, making you fit for himself. Don't take such a gift for granted. Make a clean break with all cutting, backbiting, profane talk. Be gentle with one another. Sensitive, forgive one another as quickly and thoroughly as God in Christ forgave you. Thank you. So this morning I'll break down the passage into its eight verses and we can reflect on what the Lord is saying to us as a church and as individuals. The following will be from the NIV. Verse 25. Therefore, each of you must put to a falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbour. We are all members of one body. So I'll break this down into segments this morning. Uh, Turn to the person next to you. What are the lies in these four scenarios? Very quickly, to the person next to you. (laughs) What could it be? What could it be? Okay, right, we'll start with the first one, uh, from popular American pop fiction, uh, of course it's Star Wars, uh, in this scenario a young man is discovered by, is rescued by an old man who's a veteran of a war, and the old man actually says to the boy, who is an orphan, he knew his father, he tells the boy the father was also a war veteran and a hero and a great fighter pilot, and he says, you too could be like your father and he trains him in the ways of uh, the mystical force. Unfortunately, the truth was only from a certain point of view, uh, because he also told the young man that his dad was killed by an evil soldier, a warrior called Darth Vader. Well, that truth was, unfortunately, his father had become Darth Vader and actually killed, well, the memory of the man he used to be. So the live perception is true from a certain point of view. Okay. The next one. Well, good old Pinocchio. If he told something that wasn't quite true, his nose would grow. If only it was that easy. But the classic white lie. Not actually hurting anyone, am I? You know, it's, it's okay. It's, you know, it's okay. Is it? The third one. Oh, there we go. When I was little, I was told that for 364 days a year, I was being watched by a slightly overweight gentleman who lived up north. Yeah, he... um had superhero powers, he could visit all the children in the world in one night, and uh, if I was very, very good and wrote down in a special letter what I wanted, I may, just may, get that on Christmas Day. He also raised the magical animals. Ah, oh, good old Santa Claus. I was a little bit devastated to find out it wasn't true. But then, you know, we joke about this, we joke about this. <laughs> Shushing fr- near the front row, I'm a bit concerned. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. The truth will set them free. Amen. Amen. We joke a little this morning. Thankfully, in February, I haven't done this in December. But fantasy versus reality. You know, are we just comfortable believing certain things because they're amusing or, you know, we're nostalgic? You know, is that God's best for us? And lastly, the misquoted truth. The serpent misquoted God to Eve and said, did God really say you eat of this fruit and die? That's not what God said. And of course, it wasn't an apple, was it? We don't know what it was, but it probably wasn't a Granny Smith. <laughs> so, the first behaviour Paul brings us to this morning is to put off all falsehood, lies, or deception, both to others and ourselves. We live in a world of dishonesty, with our nations lying to nations, corporations politics or the rise of fake news we no longer live with these motivations and priorities of this world as christians we ourselves do not come first it's not us against the world with only one winner therefore anything that is not true must be removed from our lives it is easy not to tell the whole truth or a little white lie or even a live admission not revealing the whole picture to someone. But truthfulness is a part of the new self that is created in the likeness of God. Jesus says that he is the truth in John 14. And scripture says that God cannot lie, Hebrews 6, Titus 1. Because in him there is no darkness, 1 John 1. In Zechariah 8, 16, the prophet spoke to the remnant community of Israel and told them to speak truth to their neighbours. He said, these are the things you shall do. Speak each man the truth to his neighbor. Give judgment in your gates for truth, justice, and peace. The motivation is also expressed by Paul. Because we are members of one another, we are joined to a body that is to be unified in love and action. We must tell each other the truth and not deceive one another. The world deceives each other, We cannot do the same. We must reach a place where we dare to trust ourselves with others so that we may be open and honest, neither fearing reprisal or disappointment. Truth speaking requires a renewal of the mind. We can become such habitual deceivers and truth benders that we may not even know it. The flesh sees no disadvantage to lying if it benefits it in the short term because no one can see all the unintended consequences of a lie. Second verse, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. So wrestling with this, this week about how anger is expressed, do we, what do we do with it? Um, the Lord spoke to me about four different paths, four different choices we have with anger. Uh, the first two, I would say, are rather ungodly. I think you'd agree. The four choices of anger. So the first one is the outward explosion of anger. An offence occurs, we get angry, perhaps we get bitter and that tends to lead to us to then begin to slander the person to their face or the organisation or behind their back and that would lead to then betrayal and eventually murder of a relationship, of an opportunity and unfortunately people's lives. Sometimes this process is accelerated People get angry, they get bitter, then they're going to betray that person. They're no friend of mine. Or even faster, they get angry, and unfortunately, they kill. Outward anger. But what happens if you don't express anger? What happens if you don't explode? What happens if you internalise it? What does that look like? Well, the offence occurs again, you still get angry, but you don't do anything with it. There's just a sense of disappointment. If it keeps happening, there's a sense of Apathy. What can you do about it? With apathy comes passivity. If you're passive for too long, you eventually find you can't stop being passive and you're almost paralysed. From a position of being paralysed over an issue leads to depression. And of course, depression ultimately leads into death of happiness, a career, a job. Again, a family, relationship, or even an individual. The inward anger against me or others. So our two, I would say, ungodly methods of dealing with anger. Verse 26, in your anger do not sin. Sometimes people absorb this scripture as never get angry. Or it becomes an excuse for righteous indignation. Did you see what that person just did? I would never do that. I think the concept though is a bit more simple and it's intent. We all have emotions. God has emotions. And he created us in his image to reflect the fact that he does. The question is, what do we do with these emotions? What do we do with our anger? Do we let it brew? Do we let it simmer? Do we let it explode? Or do we push it down, ultimately leading to apathy and depression? Now, Paul didn't give us a list of things we can and can't do in our anger. He only says, do not sin right away it's been taught through history that christ is our example yes and christ was meek and mild and so should we be we get angry and therefore we should stay quiet put our hands in our pockets look at the floor with an expression of peace and acceptance is that right is that what we're taught is that we see in the bible i don't think it is is that how christ acted when he was angry Here scripture says that we are not to let our anger be mixed with sin, not to not do it. Sin always leads to death. Paul speaks about not only having self-control, but also expressing it in a healthy and godly manner. So godly anger. We have the original offence, we get angry, we turn to God. What does God feel about this? Maybe the offence is not real at all. Maybe we've seen something actually didn't happen. We wait for the Lord to speak. If it did happen, and it did hurt, and it did matter, we must forgive. After we have forgiven, are we to automatically trust? No. We must evaluate the person, the company, the organisation. Do we trust them? Do we roll back our trust a little bit and start again? Trust is not automatic. And of course, I would believe that this brings the fruit of life. Our model, as I said, is Christ. He either pulled out his emotions to God in prayer or he acted on them. His best example of godly anger is of course his righteous fury when he came across the market sellers who had taken over the outer court of the temple, the area for the Gentiles. So we have godly anger and we have godly righteous anger. The difference with this fourth one is I believe it is against the holiness and reputation of God. It is against those who hurt the lost and broken. And it's against the work of the enemy. The man with the withered hand, again, Jesus was angry. An enemy has done this, he said. An offence occurs. We get angry. We pray. We plan. There is action for change. In John 2, 13 to 16, Jesus made a whip of cords and then drove them out of the temple With all the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned the tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. In Matthew 21, it is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Christ saw these men blaspheming God, blocking the domain of the temple for God-fearing Gentiles and essentially robbing the worshippers. He was consumed by zeal, which showed itself in fury. John 2 says, Zeal for your house has consumed me. The very fact that the temple guard, the Roman soldiers, did not intervene says much about the force of nature that was Christ. Fearing God and making a stand for Him will always have consequences, perhaps not in the moment, but eventually. Many of the gospel writers agree that this act was the final straw leading to Jesus' arrest and eventual crucifixion. So a summation of our four types: the four roots, ultimately to death, and the four and the two, sorry, two to death, and two ultimately to life. What about other people in the Bible who acted out in their anger? Any other examples? On in Isaiah 58, we read that the Israelites got into fistfights during their fasting and praying. Whoops. God described them as striking each other with wicked fists. Or take Phineas, when he impaled both his fellow Israelite and a Midianite woman for flaunting their forbidden worship uh, relationship. God not only stopped the plague, which was rampaging through the land, killing people left and right, he also went and established a covenant of peace with the man and a perpetual priesthood in Numbers 25. Wow. Yet when Peter defended the life and honour of Jesus by drawing his sword and cutting off a man's ear, he was rebuked for Jesus for his violence. So what are the differences here? Jesus was angered at blasphemy and robbery. The Israelites were fighting because they were a little bit hangry. Phineas was angry over rebellion towards God and his law. Peter was selfishly trying to keep Christ from his destiny. The drinking of the cup of suffering, the cross. The key is not that force or zeal or action or passion is wrong. It's that only those who acted in the fear of the Lord were commended. So what about ourselves? Well, on the first level, we learn to deal with our anger in a godly way. So it's productive. One without sin. Secondly, we can then move to a place of rather asking, what should I do with my anger? We actually get to a place where we say, what does God get angry about? Anytime our anger is based on selfish pride, we need to repent and ultimately take no further action towards the event or the individual. The Bible says in Proverbs 19, it is to a man's glory to overlook an offence. When we witness blasphemy on justice to the poor, the widows or the young, we need to get angry in a godly manner. But how will we know what to do? I think that the prayer of God, give me wisdom, is vital. Rarely is it advantageous to be impulsive. Even Christ went away and prepared a whip. He didn't just go in and start flipping tables. If we're walking by the light of scripture and with the Holy Spirit, in communion with brothers and sisters, I think we'll know what to do when the time comes. Sometimes a strong, even forceful reaction or action is appropriate, though most of the time it isn't. Finally, the very next important command attached to this verse, do not let the sun go down on your anger. It's one thing to be angry, even with righteous anger, but it's dangerous and sinful to remain that way. When we go to bed without having prayed, without having acted, we give the enemy of our souls an opportunity to cause trouble, pain or strife. Or appropriately put in verse 27, a foothold. And do not give the devil a foothold. In connection with uh, VE Day coming up soon, uh, we have an example of a foothold here. This time it's a foothold situation of a rescue. It's our US allies storming the beaches of Normandy in World War II. But scripture says, actually, the footholds are bad things. The Bible tells us that as children of God, we should have nothing to do with the devil. We are to grow strong in the Lord, mature in the faith, and ever-increasing in Christ's likeness. As such, we must make sure never to allow the enemy even a little bit of room in our lives. Though there are some times when we unwittingly give the enemy a foothold from where he can influence our decisions. So what is a foothold? Well, a foothold can be best understood by imagining yourself being chased by someone with bad intent. You run up to an unlocked door, open it, step inside, close it behind you, but the door doesn't shut. The person has got there as well and stuck his foot in the threshold. That part of the foot would be the foothold. As said, in military terms, it's often called a beachhead. Even better if you have a beach, like from the scenes of Normandy. Or a situation where an enemy force has infiltrated a military installation with the intent to destroy or take over? Now, physical footholds are very dangerous, as the Nazis found out. But how much more today are spiritual ones? Ones that affect our very hearts, minds, and actions. For the enemy came to steal, kill, and destroy, if given the chance. How do we prevent this effectively and close the door to the evil one? First of all, we need to be renewed in our minds and attitudes and come to that place where we forgive. Unforgiveness and bitterness give the devil a foothold big enough to cause major damage in the lives of God's children. Can we make the free will choice to forgive? God intends us to do so. We aren't to hold grudges. We are to release the offences made against you. We're not saying it was okay. We're not saying it caused pain. We are saying, I don't want to carry that anymore. I give you over to God. We release it into the Lord. Further reading, Romans 17 to 20. We are to think of what is right. Thinking of things that are sinful and ungodly and a little bit tempting also give the devil a foothold. The saying, an idle mind is the devil's playground. It's not a Bible verse, but there is a grain of truth to it. Often new age and modern meditation teach people to put their minds in neutral. Idle your mind, reach a place of emptiness. When our minds are idle, they aren't really in neutral. We've all tried clearing our minds at night after a busy or stressful day. What happens? Well, our thoughts begin to run wild and we find ourselves thinking of what is wrong sooner or later. We've got to proactively guard our minds and hearts. It's a choice of will and action. Scripture says, far from emptying your mind, actively think upon God's goodness. Actively think upon his character, his word, what he has done in the past and what he says he will do in the future. Brothers and sisters, we are to guard our hearts diligently. Proverbs 4. Take every thought captive and make it obey Christ. 2 Corinthians 10 and choose to think of what is godly and pleasing to God. Colossians 3. We have a choice. We should always meditate on God's word. Joshua 1. Filter what we see, hear and listen to. Matthew 6, 1 John 4. We have the choice to think of what is good. Whatever things are true, Whatever things are honest, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue and if there's any praise, think on these things. Of course, Philippians 4. And finally, desire what pleases God. Wrong or ungodly desires don't just give the devil a foothold. It can actually lead to acceptance of his temptations And it's really the only way he can gain influence over a child of God. We must accept those lies, accept those temptations for him to act them out in our lives. We must keep our desires in check. What we desire always reveals what's in our hearts, Luke 6. And so if we desire what is wrong, we've got to deal with the root of our hearts and attitudes. We must also remember that whatever we desire... Tempts us. James 1.14 tells us that each man is tempted when he is drawn away by his own lust and enticed. Be careful what you wish for. It has been said there are two tragedies in life. Not getting what you desire and getting what you desire. Verse 28. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that may have something to share with those in need turn to your neighbor what kind of crimes are happening in our four pictures very quickly Right, okay, so top one, um, he's got a rather oversized credit card. Make make it easy to tap on those machines when you check out. So we've got larceny, or very simple theft, a type of crime that involves unlawfully taking or using property that belongs to another person or entity. Secondly, violent theft with a gun, a robbery. Give it to me now, otherwise there will be violence. Thirdly, yes, we have some identity theft or fraud going on there not being the person you thought you were dealing with. Uh, Getting more common nowadays, as increasingly personal information is quite easy to take from companies that don't lock it down correctly. And finally, um, the theft of time. We probably don't do the the first three, but if you've ever been at work and it's time for a round of tea, I might just keep a little bit quiet and someone else might do it. Okay, what about their time? She's going to borrow their time, are you? It's an interesting one to think about, scenarios. Letting someone else do it rather than you. Oh, let someone else do that. Okay, but what about their time? Why can't you do it? Something to ponder. So another great contrast to the Christian life, the total reversal that occurs when a person encounters and accepts Christ. The thief turns into the provider or giver. I think it's important to demonstrate to our children and young people today, that God commands us to work. You do not take what you haven't earned. You must work for it. Now, of course, that takes many shapes, either being employed or self-employed, being a full-time mum or dad, caring for a sick relative or friend, volunteering your time in the local community or with your church. The crux of the matter is contribute. Give back, pay it forward, live for others, not live via others, in God's grace, of course. We need to have a willingness to share, not to take. We need to consider that we've been blessed to share with others in need. This fits what we see in the book of Acts. When fellow Christians were in need, their brothers and sisters joyfully and willingly sold their goods and property to lift those out of poverty and lack. Wow. What an example. The challenge there is to have the heart that has all things in common. When we have all things in common, that stuff gets easy acts two forty four four and thirty two because they had Christ in common, they had everything. I hope that we see that each of us have a joyful responsibility to one another, with family. If there's a need for a Christian, the first step is for them to turn to God to provide. One of those means is through the joyful generosity of their church family. We should not have a hoarding, selfish attitude towards our wealth and possessions. I have much. Let me build a barn to have more. If we do, then we fail to understand that all we have and are is given to us by God. We should have no deep attachment to our possessions, for it is often said, you can't take it with you. Therefore, though, we enjoy the fruit of our labour, We should hold it lightly so that they do not weigh us down and become a hindrance to our giving and ability to bless others. Point five, verse 29. And Paul said, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that may benefit those who listen. Oh, we've got another picture around. Turn to your neighbour, what's going on? Four scenarios. What kind of words are being used? I do hope no one's trying to guess the words, the stick figures in the top right hand corner. Probably move past that. Oh my goodness! Oh, that's pretty wholesome, Dave. So probably not that, but um, yeah, probably not on that spectrum. But there we go. So what's happening in the top left? Got some office gossip going on, possibly. Okay. Of course, foul or dirty language, sarcasm. That's a great British one. I've certainly uh, <laughs> I do tend to lean that way a bit more with my humour. Have to watch that one. Nice job. You know, it's a way of being honest without actually being completely rude to someone. Hmm, okay, is that God's best? Hmm, and of course, ah, well, not of course. This one, the Lord said to me, what about self-pity? You know, the words we say to ourselves. Oh, always happens to me. Why can't I get that opportunity at work? Oh, why do I always miss the last train? Those words, those good words, are those words of life? Or would the Lord see those as foul language to ourselves? Oh yeah. Foul words must never come out of our mouths. Such language is the language of the world, and that world is lost. Jesus said for us to be a blessing and not a curse. Therefore, we must not use filthy language. We will not misuse the Lord's name. We should not be cursing and using words that cause pain or hate in the heart of others. If you want a clean tongue and mouth, we need a renewing, again, of our heart and mind. Being a believer is not about what we can't say or do. It's about having the freedom and power to say and do the right things. It's not about a list of you can't do these things. It's about actually you've got a power to do better things. We build rather than destroy. We encourage rather than dishearten. This is the first test of our mouth. The words must be good for other people. Will this statement build the listener up? Will this statement set them free? Or am I tearing them down? Am I undermining them? Am I looking for an advantage? Are they destructive words or helpful words? Are my conversations the words of healing, like Christ, or the words of harm? Point six, motivation or a command. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed, the day of redemption. Here in verse 30, we read either a continuing motivation for good works, or it may be a standalone statement that covers all of the instructions in Ephesians 4 and 5. This command may be tied to the corrupted talk that is being highlighted in verse 29. Though we read this truth in Ephesians 1, 13 to 14, Our identity is that we are heirs of God and sealed with the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to grieve God? This comes from Isaiah 63.10. But they rebelled and grieved the Holy Spirit. Therefore he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Isaiah the prophet is recounting the goodness of God when he delivered people from oppression and slavery. The context was the picture of the exodus from Egyptian slavery to the promised land. God is pictured as kind and as gracious and as present. But they rebelled and grieved the Holy Spirit. You can only grieve God for so long before he will intervene. He will not be mocked forever. These first three chapters of Ephesians reflect the story. We read that we were dead in our sins... Lost with no hope of rescue, but God sent his son, who died to ransom us back to his father. We were adopted into his family. We grieve God's heart when we see and experience the grace of God, but continue to live in the rebellion of our actions and words. Point seven. In verse 31, get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Yeah, of course. Another four pictures. Turn to your friend. What's going on here? What's going on here? This one's a little bit harder. And what's the missing word from Charles? Charles's quote in the bottom right-hand corner. We're missing a word there. Okay, straight into it. So the top one, uh, it's like a fist, some branches or a tree. It's a root of bitterness. Oh, it's like catchphrase, isn't it? I've missed my calling, Fran. <laughs> it's a bit small, but there we go. Right, so he's seen something on his phone. Oh my goodness, his world's crashed. Someone said something about him. It's slander, it's not true. Clamor, what is clamor? I was like, I don't really know this word. But apparently it comes from when um, a wounded soldier is hurt on the battlefield and he's basically shouting, medic, medic. It's making a noise. It's a tension for everyone to see, no matter the consequences. And finally, malice. That was the missing word. One doesn't have to operate with great malice to do great harm. The absence of empathy and understanding are sufficient. Wow, that's a bar. There we go. The Apostle Paul continued in verse 31 with more sweeping changes to our character. All bitterness, wrath, anger, ungodly, clamour, slander, and malice must be removed from our lives. We can't hold grudges or bitter roots because of people's offences. Have we so easily forgotten the grace and mercy of God upon our own offences? Furthermore, no one deserves our wrath. We are not to be instruments of vengeance. Only God can see the whole picture, the human heart, and only he can judge fairly and righteously. When we forgive, as I've said this morning, we're not saying that the offence or crime was okay. We are saying that we'll no longer be a prisoner of the consequence. In fact, we give that person and situation into Christ's hands for judgment and ultimately restoration. Clamour, as I said, is also a sin from this point of view. It is making noise from the place of ungodly anger, slamming doors, banging objects, throwing things, jeering the crowd to turn to you and against the person of your rage, to bear ill will towards another. Now, malice is such a dark word and emotion, and it leads to many unspeakable evil actions and hastens us back to the days of Noah when people's hearts were continually filled with the desires of evil. So the conclusion this morning. Let's look at the final verse and fittingly a summation of all that Paul warned us about. This is the emphasis of the Christian walk. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ forgave you. If we take anything from our time together this morning, that's it. Why do we solely focus on the negatives the things that condemn us, the things that drag us down, when there's much more freedom to look at when we uphold the positive. We are to be as Jesus was and is, to be kind to one another, to be compassionate and tender-hearted, just as Christ is to us, to be slow to anger, yet quick to love and forgive. The Apostle Paul saw the grace of God at work in all situations and circumstances. For us as believers this is also especially true because the church of Jesus Christ is the focus of the gracious tender mercy and grace of our loving father on earth. God by his spirit brings dead souls to life. He transforms apathy into admiration. A state of alienation to a point where our hearts swell with affection for him. We are moved from a state of darkness into a state of abundant life now and eternal life to come. So may we be loving. May we be a place of safety for each other. May we be tender to the broken and the wounded that we encounter each day. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are just so grateful for the grace that you've poured out upon us. Lord, by the the giving of your Son. Lord, by the giving of your Holy Spirit. And Jesus, this morning, Lord, we just want to come to that place and say, Lord, if we've grieved you, Lord, if we've missed the mark in areas of our lives, God, we are sorry. Lord, we want to repent. Lord, we want to take responsibility. Father, we want to take the opportunity to make amends with others and with you. Jesus, thank you, Lord, that you have offered us abundant life. Lord, we accept it graciously and with humble hearts. Lord, thank you that you've given us your spirit, Lord, to set us free, to be the comforter, Lord, that we need, to defend us where We need defending, Lord, to encourage us where we need encouraging. God, this morning we ask for a fresh infilling of your spirit upon us. Jesus, Lord, don't leave us as we are. Lord, thank you that we're in a process, Lord, where you're transforming us from glory to glory. Who we were yesterday is not who we will be tomorrow. Lord, for your grace and glory, in Jesus' name. Amen.